The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome everybody. Nice to see you here. And we're really glad to have Ajahn Chandako back in Minnesota, place he was actually born and a graduate of Carleton College, got interested in Buddhism after being a religious studies major. Um, very soon afterward, practiced with Kadagiri Roshi at the Minnesota Zen Center, rode a bike across Tibet back before it was even cool, right? <laughs> and continued his interest, took a retreat in Thailand, um, dug a little deeper, and basically never looked back. So Ajahn, almost 30 years now, has been practicing as a mon- monastic in the Ajahn Chah Western lineage, did his training at Wapananachat in Thailand, a pretty well-known monastery that Ajahn Chah started Ajahn Sumedho being its first abbot back in the mid-70s. And Ajahn was able to practice with a lot of the senior forest Ajahns, the wise, well-practiced Thai monks back in his uh, early years. And then for the last 15 years or so has been an abbot, the abbot of Vamuti, a wonderful and beautiful monastery outside of Auckland in New Zealand. And uh, you can check out the website. Just you could either Google Ajahn's name, Chandako, or Vimuti is the, the name of the monastery. And Ajahn has a lot of the teachings from the Thai forest tradition up there that you can read. And uh, Ajahn's been coming to Minnesota for about 15 years to teach at Common Ground. And he has a little f- uh, forest hermitage on a friend's land up in the Chippewa or right next to the Chippewa Natural National Forest in northern Minnesota, and he'll go up there for this week and then head back to New Zealand when he's done. And Ajahn has offered to do some teachings on karma or kama, and uh, as we were discussing this morning, it's sort of a a bit of a hornet's nest because it brings up a lot for us. So it's really a good opportunity for us to practice some today, listen to the teachings, and to be able to ask questions of Ajahn. So we're really grateful, Ajahn, that you're here. Thanks again for being here. So, karma continued. How many, how many people, let's say, how many people were here last night? I don't want to repeat myself too much, right? A, a lot of faces I recognize, and and uh, okay, about half. So, I'll. Um, I'll give a bit of uh, a synopsis from what I was speaking about last night, um, but it will, will kind of go off into different directions, and I want to make sure that we actually do some meditation today as well, because that's the best way to let the teaching sink in, is you know, sometimes in a non-verbal, non-intellectual way, and just allow them to seep down into the quietude of the mind. And also I want to make sure that there's plenty of time for discussion. So uh, while I'm speaking, or um, we'll have specific times uh, for question and answers, please feel free to ask whatever you want to ask. And um, karma is a very interesting subject. And a lot of daily life examples tend to start coming up. And we start talking about it, and you think, well, what about this situation? What kind of karma do we make in that situation? So 
Um, it's a very practical subject. It can be approached in a, in a very theoretical way, and there's a, s- a certain amount of that. It's good to know, just to understand uh, the definitions, but it's also a very practical teaching. I mean, it, it is literally the essence of our practice. Every, m- every moment, everything we do on this path of Buddhist training is, is essentially developing wholesome karma and, and watching the results of both wholesome and unwholesome karma. Okay. So the essence of karma is intention. And when we talk about karma, I'm going to use the Pali term, K-A-M-M-A, rather than karma, uh, just to differentiate it from any other popular concepts that we may have around karma and what that means and how it's used in a, in a popular sense. But the Buddha was very clear and precise in his definitions of what constitutes wholesome or unwholesome karma. So the Pali term jaitana is what we translate as intention. Now really jaitana is a bit more inclusive than, the p- than what we normally think of as intention because we, we, might, we might be careless and, we s- and do something and we say, oh, well, I didn't intend, you know, I didn't intend to, to run into that car or I didn't intend to, um, to do something. But actually, it d- we, we still may have had jaitana, that movement of the mind, which leads us to think and speak and act in a particular way. Even if it's only a movement of the mind that comes from some form of delusion. Right? This is often when we, we think, oh, well, I didn't intend to do something. Well, it doesn't mean we're free of the responsibility that comes with um, being careless. Even, even having a low level of mindfulness is already, is already there's some uh, unwholesome karma involved. And even simply being aware, just the basic awareness, is already very wholesome karma. Low level? Yeah, it really depends. <laughs> it's, like it's, uh, it's relative. Um, if you're driving your car and distracted and then you run into someone else's car, I would c- consider that a low level of mindfulness. And then uh, I'd say, well, I didn't, it wasn't my intention as if, it, uh, as if somehow we're free of any responsibility for that. But, uh, so this is in some ways where the English word intention does not necessarily perfectly coincide with what we mean um, by jaitana or pali, you know, the pali form of that movement of the mind that precedes everything that we think, do. Right? And we, uh, or if you want to say, probably safe to say all of us have a low level of, of awareness, including myself. Yeah. But it all depends on who you compare it to. If you compare it to uh, 
meditation masters or if you compare it to the Buddha, then you know we're all essentially mentally imbalanced. But if you compare ourselves to most people in the world, then you'd say, well, we have a relatively high level of awareness, self-awareness and external awareness. So these are just relative terms. Now, th on the practical aspect of the law of karma is that it's not, karma is not fate or fixed. It doesn't mean that you know, things have to be a particular way. Things are a particular way because they have to. It's been written in the stars somehow that um, it's uh, or preordained that it will be that way. Kama is action. And also the Buddha differentiated between action and the results of action. So action is the, the, uh, the part that is reacting to the present moment. And that reaction, whether it's coming from wisdom or it's coming from lack of wisdom, will then have corresponding results. And the results, we have a different term for. It's called vipaka, or the results of karma. Kama vipaka. So often in common speech, we tend to you know, mix those up. We say, oh, it's just his, it's just his karma. Um, referring to the results or, or almost imputing that it, it is somehow a mystical fatalism. It has to be that way. So just to differentiate, the Buddha never used the term in that way. You know? The way the Buddha used it was, in this moment we can make, uh, we have the ability to observe and generate particular responses to this, pr this moment. And then that will have consequences in the future. And if there's certain outcomes in the future that we would like to direct our life towards, then we can play an active role in that. We're not just, it's not just hit or miss. You know, if we'd like to think, oh, what kind of person would I like to be? Just thinking conventionally, what kind of person would you like to be when, when we grow up? <laughs> when we grow up someday, what kind of person would you like to be? I say, oh, I'd like to be a wise person. All right, well, what are the causes and conditions that will lead to that? And so it's not just hit or miss. It's not just, you know, some people are going to end up wise and other people aren't. You know, there's a lot that we can do to create the causes. We can generate the causes that will lead to wisdom and understanding. So that gives you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, freedom. It also gives us a sense of, uh, hey, there's something we can do to change our lives. We're, things aren't just, we're not just stuck in a situation. We're not even stuck in a particular personality. We think, oh, this is just my personality. It's just the way I am. When I hear people talk like that, I'm like, <laughs> they're like, Oh, it's just the way I am, and I'm never going to change. So, well, yeah, if you have that attitude, it might be true. <laughs> but if you, have the, if you have a clearer understanding of the law of karma, you realize how flexible things are. Even, even you know, habits, person, what we call personality, all of this is very flexible. 
and there's a it's it's insp- I think I mean I find it inspiring to see how much f- freedom there is in being able to choose how we respond we don't have to be limited by the way we responded yesterday or the last 10 years or the last 30 years we can actually start to say oh, no I'm going to respond to the present moment in a different way and then literally we start to create the causes for becoming a, uh, a different person, a different, different habits, different, uh, uh, different qualities that we can generate in our life. Right. So a correct understanding of the law of karma then gives you a lot of energy. You think, oh, well, you know, things are the main, the main, uh, the main cause, the main condition for how things will turn out in the future is what I'm doing right now. Right? We're not free of the past, but we can, we can really start to generate whatever outcome that we start to, uh, that we would hope for or aspire to in the future. You know, we can start to, um, we can start to literally create our future right now. So when you see that, then you get motivated. It's not just uh, not just a, a passive acceptance of whatever happens to us. So, so the way the Buddha talked about karma was a very dynamic relationship with the present moment. Okay. So that's a general overview, and today uh, uh, I can go into lots of more detailed situations, uh, different types of intentions that we can talk about. Uh, I want, before we get too far, I want to make sure we leave some time for meditation this morning. And, and before we do that, does anybody have any questions so far? Yes. Say that again. How do when you have children, to oh, yes, right. Uh huh. Uh, it greatly improved. Well, the main thing that improved was me being able to be happy and, and at peace, right? And just being able to let go of that the anger and aversion and resentment right? and just being able to, to truly let go and just notice how quickly I was able to free myself from that. Now, you know, when I was able to do that, then our relationship improved. <laughs> so, and it wasn't necessarily that his behavior changed, but how I, I uh, responded to it changed. So, yeah, in that sense, it definitely improved, yeah. <laughs> and it's one of the I mean, relationships in that way. Like, that relationship was instructive for me in that I saw how much flexibility there was 
and how I wasn't just trapped in a particular response. Like if I really rose up to the challenge and decided, no, I, I'm not going to just perpetuate this unwholesome uh, interaction, unwholesome way of responding in my own mind. I'm not going to perpetuate that any longer. I just you know, rose up, made that decision, no, I'm going to make a change, even if it means giving up the thing that's most precious to me, or material thing that was most precious to, to me. And so it really freed up a lot of spaciousness and uh, open-heartedness you know, for me. So that was the main thing that changed. Yes. Yeah, whether, we're, whether we have clear awareness or not, we're generating intention all the time. Right? And if we're not very clearly aware, then we just tend to operate on habits. We may have some good habits and we may, may have some bad habits, but essentially we're just kind of on automatic. A low level of mindfulness is already um, clouded by delusion. So there is already some unwholesome karma just associated with delusion because it tends to perpetuate itself. And, and when we're clouded by delusion, then it's easy to make other, other mistakes just because we're not paying attention. So it's just because we're not clearly paying attention and, and just, I would say, ah. Uh, doing things on automatic throughout the day doesn't mean that we're not making bad karma, right? And, and uh, it may not be intense, but we tend to perpetuate. We per- perpetuate perceptions, you know, often perceptions of other people or situations that we're projecting, right? So that's already... You know, that's a, a movement of the mind. Right? We're perpetuating particularly emotional reactions to situations that um, so many of these things, because if we're just perpetuating it regularly, it just seems normal as if this is the way life is. And until we look at it closely, we realize, oh, well, you know, it could be different. You know, things could be different. And better. So, <laughs> so yes, uh, there is uh, um, that address what you're talking about. Yeah. 
And also it depends what you mean by my movement, right? Even if you are, even if you're in sitting still in samadhi, there's, there's still jaitana happening. It's very wholesome, right? It's just the, the movement of the mind towards, towards unification and brightness or um, uh, the... It's not necessarily movement in terms of being agitated. I mean, that's, that's common, obviously. But even, even if you're in samadhi, there still is jaitana there. There's, and it's, it's very wholesome. Right? Still, bright, joyous mind, clear, high degree of awareness. Right? That's all preceded by what we translate as intention. That's why sometimes uh, intention doesn't seem to kind of be the perfect translation. It's not that we're sitting there intending to be bright and joyous. We may start the meditation with a hope for that. <laughs> so I intend to be bright and joyous. And that may assist the process, kind of get it going in the right direction. But once you're just... Uh, sitting quietly in meditation, the mind is still and there's not a lot of movement of mind, there still is the essence of, you're still making karma, making a lot, a tremendous amount of wholesome karma in that state of mind. Um, so I understand that uh, karma is created by intention. Um, karma can be created by intentions even if they're not acted upon externally. So I'm wondering, um, at what point is karma generated? Is it once, like the moment that any kind of like inclination or impulse arises, or is it once there's some sort of internal reaction or identification with it? As soon as, as, soon as there's this energy of the mind in a particular direction, then... Karma is already being generated. And we can amplify that through paying attention to it and expanding that in our mentally. You know? We can amplify it then through acting on it, through saying something or doing something. But the, the essence is there in our mind already, even, even if we're not aware of it. And that's, I think, the sobering thing is we can be, we're making karma all the time whether we're aware of it or not. So it really pays to be aware of it to, to make sure we're kind of heading in a direction that's going to be beneficial. <laughs> uh, just a follow-up question to that, Ajahn, about uh, saying something maybe a little bit more specific about recognizing uh, intention that manifests as distractedness, right? Like that, there's a particular karmic fruit about the mind, like not valuing being aware, mindfully aware. And it's just like what you've learned about identifying or recognizing that intention around that would manifest as a kind of what we'd call a distracted mind. Often, 
we, f- we get some sort of pleasure or we think we're looking for some sort of pleasure when our minds are distracted. And it can be interesting to ask ourselves, well, what is it, what is it that I'm looking for? What kind of pleasure do I get just from being distracted? And every unwholesome state, unwholesome karma that we make, we usually do so because we think somehow it's going to lead to happiness. So the subtle states of distraction are, are similar. Like, Why is it that if we just have a continuity of mindfulness and, and are relatively still and quiet, and we would experience joy that comes from that, why is it that we then we, instead of that, we look for distraction mentally or sometimes just, you know, putter around the house looking for distraction? Why is that? The essence is, is it comes down to a misunderstanding and not, not seeing the, um, not fully experiencing and recognizing the benefits of being still. You can't force yourself not to be distracted, right? It's only when we discover uh, something that is even better that we're able to let go of distraction. It's like all of the, the movements of the mind that are leading towards wherever, wherever we're going, that is, that uh, maybe is a bit of a distraction from our Dhamma practice. So why is it that we do that? We're still looking for happiness, and it's just a, a m- essential misunderstanding. You know, if, we, if we clearly see the causes of happiness, then we'll tend to go there without any, um, you don't need to be encouraged or forced to go there. We'll just go there automatically. If we see the true cause of happiness, we're going to go there because that's what our mind's inclined towards. And the whole process of practicing the Dhamma is based around developing a more refined happiness in order to let go of a more coarse happiness. So if there's a distraction happening, think, well, what kind of happiness am I looking for that I'm not able to find through being non-distracted, through being still? Am I, am I fully appreciating the benefits of being still? And again, it's not, you can't convince yourself of that. You can't just say, oh, it's <coughs> it'd be better for me if my mind was still and quiet and peaceful. Even if we agree with that, we still look for distraction. But it's only when we get a real taste for it. And maybe that just happens um, occasionally when we're meditating or on retreat, you get a taste of, of true stillness. You think, oh, that happiness I've been looking for, it's actually right here the whole time. And uh, and that plants the seed of 
being able to come back there again and again. But the habit of distraction, looking for gratification or happiness externally, is that habit is so well ingrained, it's so deeply ingrained, that it's not easily overcome. And as soon as we stop maybe getting uh, gratification internally, you know, then we'll start to look externally again. You know, as soon as... It's, there's one sutta where the Buddha talks about different levels of, of jhana, or states of samadhi. And when these states... I mean, these states are very satisfying, but when they wear off, then eventually a person will start to look for happiness in other places. Right? If they, uh, they need to be continually developed. And as soon as, if one just stops meditating, even if one had had a, quite a lot of positive what we call success, right? in that sense of, in meditation, experiencing the true states of samadhi, if one just stops, and doesn't keep developing it, and eventually we start to look for happiness in other places, even though we, we know, you know, we've had this experience that true happiness comes from within. So that's the, the root, I think, of a distracted mind, distracted mind, is just looking for some kind of hit, a little, like a little sensory hit, gratification. It's just such a strong habit. So all of our seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, physical sensations, and cognizing. Right? How we relate to that moment by moment is very much bound up with the law of karma. If we're just looking to maximize pleasure through the senses, that's kind of what we call a normal life. You know, we don't have to think of it in terms of you know, hedonistic life, but most people would just call that normal. You're trying to Maximize, maximize comfort. And uh, so we have, we're surrounded by nice things. We're surrounded by nice sounds. Uh, we have um, beautiful things. Um, we, have, um, we try to control the temperature so that it's comfortable. We have seats that are comfortable. We don't intentionally seek the opposite. But that, in, that all arises from the intention. The intention is to try to seek pleasure through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and cognizing. So that's, you know, the essence of daily life is pretty much bound up with, with developing gratification through sensory experience. And I mean, it's not, to, not saying that's bad, it's just like the recognition of, okay, well, this is what we call normal life. But we don't have to be stuck in that. Right? One of the <coughs> one of the difficult parts of monastic life is, or sometimes, just going into unfamiliar situations, is that we get pulled out of that situation. We get pulled out of our comfort zones. So like when we go to Thailand, initially, right. 
physical sensations, like unpleasant physical sensations, become predominant. You're sleeping on the floor, it's too hot, you're sweating, nothing's really, there's a lot that's really not comfortable. Um, the f- you know, whether you like the food or you don't like the food, or whether things you know, seem beautiful or not. There's, you know, aesthetically, um, Dhamma centers in the West tend to be aesthetically very pleasing. Um, Buddhist centers in Asia, you know, we might consider ugly. You know, by comparison. Right. So when the mind's looking for a distraction, you think, oh, you know, Jesus, we could replace that concrete with wood. We could, you know, we could really make this place look a lot better. Well, then we'd be happy. Right. Then, you know, that movement of the mind towards creating pleasure in seeing, creating, you know, having nice sounds, there's great benefit in, you know, there's a reason why we go to the forest and quiet places and it's surrounded by natural sounds. But often in centers in Asia, it's really loud. It's noisy, the sounds of the village, there's traffic noise. Um, you, know, you have to make a, a real effort sometimes to, uh, to go to more remote, remote places. So that, uh, that it can be helpful to challenge ourselves by taking ourselves out of the familiar situation. Only then do we start to realize to what degree we're relying on, you know, I'm, I'm feeling relatively peaceful because I, all day long I get to see beautiful things or hear nice sounds, sounds that I like, temperatures that I feel comfortable with, uh, or even thoughts that I feel comfortable with. You know, this is the whole realm of, of social politics. <laughs> you know, we feel comfortable being surrounded by opinions or perceptions that agree with us or that bring up a sense of uh, pleasure. Right? If they agree with us, then they tend to be pleasurable. Right? So whether it's you know, the five external senses or whether it's the sense of the mind, that's assen- that's essentially like normal life. Is this this wish to be gratified through uh, through through pleasant, you know, a pleasant gratification through the senses. The problem is that that uh, is a bit of a burden. It's a burden to to kind of keep it going all the time. If you could just get it right and it would stay that way, that would be easier. But as soon as you get it right, then it changes. Everything is perfect, and then it changes. Or just there's there's a lot of, it takes a lot of energy just to get everything right. Get all the colors right. right. Get all of the sounds right. Get all the physical sensations right. As soon as you get all the physical sensations right, then then we get older, and then we get more unpleasant physical sensations, and then we try to alleviate those. And, you know, it's just like an ongoing ongoing, uh, it's hard work after a while, which becomes a burden in itself, just to try to keep this level of, of pleasant, pleasant gratification coming through the senses. And that's not even, I mean, we're not even talking about what we would talk, consider hedonism. I mean, it's just like a normal level of living. So there's a certain trap in that. There's a certain lack of freedom. 
if that's where we're looking for our happiness. So that's kind of bound up with distraction. Um, I'm curious because I'm new to this concept of kama in the in this tradition, and um, you mentioned there's sort of the mental uprising. There's also um, the action, and I'm curious: is reaction included in that? So let's say I have a pleasant or positive response, and how is that related to the next intention? Mm-hmm. Well, when I say reaction, it doesn't necessarily have a a negative connotation. It could be a wise reaction, right? Often we think of, you know, reaction meaning that, oh, it must be coming from anger or greed or aversion or something. But no, it could, we're reacting all the time to our current experience. And if we react in a wise way or a kind way or a gentle way, then that will, that will be the, the karma that we are generating that will lead to certain results. If you... The way I, I think of karma is like the whole history of the universe is leading to this present moment. There's nothing we can do to change that. But how we respond to that will literally create our future. And that's where the dynamism comes in. Right? We can respond by hating it. You know, this is everything has led up to this situation and I don't like it. Or everything has led up to this exact situation and I love it. I want more. Right? <laughs> it's like, okay, well that's that's also maybe not the best response. So everything led up the situation and okay, I accept it just for what it is, with equanimity. But then you can also take a slightly more active role and say, This is the way it is, I accept it and I'm going to kind of respond, intentionally generate a response which will have influence the future, right? So this is the way it is, and I'm going to bring up a response of gratitude. I'm going to feel grateful for it, right? Even if, you know, you just do that ten times a day. Yeah? Ten times a day, remind yourself, it's like, oh, this situation, I'm very grateful for it. Yeah? When we have a when we have good food, just reminding ourselves, oh, I'm very grateful for this. Or wake up in the morning, oh, I woke up again. Okay, I'm very grateful. I'm alive. Right. So that's just, um, there's a whole range of how we can respond to this particular moment and the situation that we find ourselves in. And then that's the point which creates the a significant cause and uh, for what we experience in the future. And just to follow up, it creates an intention because we might start from a place of gratitude or anger, and that that sort of generates how we see the world next and what we're expecting out of it. I'm just curious how the two relate. The, the intention that we generate will lead on to many other things. First of all, it will create habits. Right? So if we're regularly, regularly responding with frustration, then that just becomes a habitual way that we respond to 
specific situations or maybe just to life in general. If we're regularly responding with gratitude, then that becomes habitual. And it's much more conducive to happiness. Uh, If we're regularly responding with clear awareness and seeing things as closely to reality as we can, then that will tend to lead towards clearer understanding, uh, more accurate perceptions. All of these will then lead on to how we think, how we perceive things, opinions that we form. When we think and see in a particular way, that leads on to how we live our life, the choices that we make in daily life. Why is it that we make the choices that we make? We think we're We make the choices that we make because we want to be happy or we think that this is what we have to do to be happy. But when we see things more clearly, then maybe we start making different choices. So, oh, that that way actually is not leading to the happiness that I thought it would. Maybe I should start automatically, you know. Things start to modify and change as our, as our, Personality is based on habitual traits, and our habitual traits are are based on how we perceive things, our thought patterns, and all of this kind of gets traced back to how we respond right here and right now to the present moment. And that's the comma that we generate. Thanks. So, (coughs) thank you, Ajahn, for the teachings. so just a comment and a question. So I was just paying attention to my body right now as you were speaking, and um, I noticed there was a lot of pleasant sensations. And so then I was, you know, then I was thinking about, or I was uh, contemplating or focusing on being grateful for the pleasantness. And then I noticed the pleasantness increased and kind of expanded. And... Uh, and like so I kind of saw just in that moment how it's kind of creating a positive sort of karmic effect. And it's kind of like, you know, usually I just do more of like the knowing, so open awareness of the pleasant sensations in the body. But, you know, just in you, in these moments, I noticed that, you know, choosing how you want to respond or how you want to relate or uh, what quality you want to bring into the mind at the particular moment, that will definitely have a different effect. And it's kind of like up uploading software into the brain uh, and then eventually like you know that will become more of the hardware of the brain as the the karmic fruits kind of blossom does that sound kind of accurate you need to get the right karmic app (laughs) (laughs) but yes you know, the Buddha didn't just teach mindfulness. You know, we stress that a lot, and it's kind of the buzzword. But he didn't just teach mindfulness. He taught mindfulness and right effort. And they have to both go together for every step of the Noble Eightfold Path. So mindfulness brings us to clear awareness of the present moment. Right? Kind of the, what you were talking about, the open, non-biased awareness of the present moment. But once we see the situation then there's a certain responsibility to encourage the wholesome, discourage the unwholesome. Right? Now, simply being aware, clearly aware, is already wholesome. 
So just, you know, staying with that, you know, is, is, is part of right effort. But there's a lot that can be done intentionally, right? which is very much part of the Buddhist path. It's not like it's all just about just being clearly aware and accepting whatever happens. There's a more active element to it as well. Like you say, you know, just bringing up a thought of gratitude, bringing up, uh, and then immediately you see the positive result that comes from that, or the benefit that comes from that, and that gives a starts a positive feedback loop. Right. Behind you. Thank you very much. Hello, hello. Uh, what what are your thoughts about people who um, who uh, about intention and karma? We all see the world through our cognitive perceptual template that's probably based on our personal history and culture. And people do things that seem crazy to me, probably with good intentions, wi within the construct, within the frame of reference of their own mind, that 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 are that are bad, for lack of a better word. People probably have good intentions. They they think God wants them to kill innocent people, and they'll be rewarded. Uh, if, if, if I'm an MMA fighter, and, and I'm not an MMA fighter, mm -hmm. uh, and, I, and I like to fight, I might go out and pick fights with people because I think, well, everybody likes fighting. So how does, how does intentions in comma play into that? What are your thoughts about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so much of what individuals might consider good or bad, you know, a good thing to do, a bad thing to do, good thing to, a good uh, opinion or a good way of acting, is culturally dependent. And this is why I try to stay away from the terms good and bad because they're so culturally dependent. You know, in, in certain, cir certain cultures, if, if a woman chooses her own boyfriend, it's a good thing for the brother to beat the sister up or kill her, right? And that's considered an honorable, good thing to do. In other s societies, it's considered a very, it's a horrific thing to do, right? So, um, and then in our own society, there's, you know, many examples of, you know, people who perceive things in a very, very different way. How can they, how can people have, how can people have these wrong opinions and be so confident in, in when it's so clear that they're wrong, right? In, in and they're thinking the right. same thing. Everybody thinks they're right. So, um, so the law of karma is a way that offers an objective standard um, that's independent of culture, independent of era. Right? If, it's, if an intention is arising from wish to harm, you know, the intention to harm, or the intention to grasp and cling or the or just clouded by the intention of strong identification then that's going to that's what we term unwholesome karma that will have unbeneficial results right. and so all of you know all of us do that to a certain degree right whatever political opinions we have whatever culture we're in we all do that to a certain degree. So the law of karma offers a, a, 
an objective standard. What, oh, sorry, sorry. What, what about people who, in, in their own frame of reference, their intention is good, is to be helpful, but they do things that most people would perceive as, as very bad, for lack of a better word? Yeah, I wonder. Maybe for some people, I'd, I just don't. It probably depends on the individual. You know, I think there are some people who, who, s- who, f- they, they, th- they're of the opinion that in vi- in certain situations, violence is a good thing, and they actually enjoy it. Or there's some people who would be like that, whether it's war, for example doing the right thing for your country and spreading democracy and killing the or you're just killing infidels or whatever you know the idea that you know some people may not like the actual act the of violence but there are a certain percentages that actually do enjoy that as well so i think it it varies quite a bit Right. Whether we are the opinion that it's good or not is doesn't affect the the comma that we make, right? I mean, there's some good comma that people may th- people may not think it's a good thing socially, right? But there are many, uh, like when I when I was 25 and I told my dad I wanted to be a monk. He thought that was a bad thing, right? In his in his culture, that seemed like a bad decision, stupid thing to do when you're young. You know, to intentionally be celibate when you're 25. He said, "That's a bad thing," right? He didn't express it like that, but you know, it's like he he didn't think it was a a, a wise choice. But irrespective of that culturally conditioned opinion renunciation is always considered good karma wholesome karma right even if it's just like you know just letting go of of a small thing that act of renunciation that intention towards giving up is always considered to be wholesome so whether we whether people think it's a good thing or a bad thing, or they get pr- social praise for being a good, good or bad, um, doesn't affect uh, the, the results of the karma. Uh, thank you, Rajan. Um, the line of discussion that we've just been having around distractedness and um, intent or motivation is really important for me uh my mind uh, bubbles over with the uh trying to understand and be aware 
of the issues that come up that I put in the range of comma. And um, I'll just, most of the questions that I would have have actually been asked. But I have one other thing. I was trying to think, what would be my geek squad for the app for, um, uh, for a good app? And years ago, it just popped into my mind, but years ago I, had, I was in another Buddhist training, uh, teaching in New York, and um, I developed a, a mantra, if you will, for myself, which is guide me, guard me, protect me, provide for me, show me the way, and please, please, please take care of me. And I reverse that for other people. I say, guide them, guard them, protect them, show them the way. Please, please, please take care of them. And it helps me a lot. But it had been out of my mind for a while, so I'm glad for the discussion we've just had because I put that back in my mind. I, I like that mantra for myself. So thank you, and thank all those for the questions that have just gone by. Thank you. So about three weeks ago, um, my husband and I were driving on I-94 and were hit twice by a very large semi. And the driver said we were in his blind spot, um, which I think may be true, but he could have seen us before as he approached us. And now we're dealing with multiple issues and, um, you know, I, I can look at that and say, well, we were lucky to walk away. Um, <laughs> uh, but at the same time, I kind of want to say, well, that's hokey. You know, it shouldn't have happened. Um, and it seems horribly unfair, the situation we've been put in with, you know, dealing with medical and with insurance. And um, we don't know how things will turn out. We don't know, you know, how we will be. Um, I think our practice has helped us. Um, I don't think we're mad at the driver, um, but w we have this anger over the situation. And it seems kind of justified. Yeah, it's the problem with samsara. Even when everything's going really well, you can suddenly get hit by a semi-trailer truck. <laughs> and nowhere in the suttas have I ever seen the Buddha say, life should be fair. I mean, <clears throat> with the law of karma, there's a, s there's a certain perfection, like the, there's a certain perfection in it. You know, it's just an impersonal cause and effect system that you know certain certain effects that we experience have their roots in other causes 
And you can kind of see how that plays out, and you kind of you can accept that, but uh, it doesn't necessarily mean it's pleasant, and it doesn't. It's certainly not what we would wish for. It's one of the reasons that the Buddha so strongly emphasized, you know, don't take your refuge in in samsara in the world, because it's so unpredictable. Just when everything's going right, as long as we've, as long as we've made the karma to be born into the human realm, then we're subject to a whole range of diseases that could just pop up at any time. Right? Our li- our our balance of everything just being relatively okay is still pretty fragile. All it takes is is it's like a f- few things to change and boom you know it can it can be drastically challenged so yeah that's uh it's kind of one of the reasons why <laughs> Buddha encourages us to you know practice before those situations happen as a preparation often if we wait until things become difficult or or unpleasant, then it can be overwhelming if we haven't done a lot of, you know, preparation. So there's a, you know, there's a lot of aspects of our practice that have to do with, you know, uh, thought-based contemplation of the nature of life, of impermanence, for example. You know, when things are going well, you think, well, you know, okay, this could end at any time. And that's not a pessimistic way of looking at things. It's more just a, okay, well, that's realistic. And, in, you know, y- it's fine to fully en- enjoy things while they're going well. Would have never denied that. But just knowing that, you know, this could change at any moment um, is realistic. We could die at any moment. We could get sick pretty much any time. Suddenly, you know, how many people we know seem we're healthy and suddenly they're diagnosed with cancer and within six months or a year, they just kind of fizzle up and are gone. It's how quickly things can change. And so there's a certain amount of cutting, you know, cutting through delusion helps to prepare us for that. Th- things that are bound up with delusion are like uh, the idea that we're going to continue to be healthy and happy. We're going to l- uh, assumption that we're going to live to a certain age. Um, just certain unrealistic assumptions. If we challenge them early enough, then when we get hit by the semi at least it's not a surprise. It still may be difficult. You know, no matter how much I reflect on death, when uh, when uh, a loved one is suddenly killed or comes down with cancer, it's, it still feels a bit shocking. Right? But you know, the the amount of contemplation beforehand helps to 
soften the, the blow a bit, helps to make it easier to accept. And again, if it's to the degree that we take our refuge in everything being perfect externally, to that degree we're going to suffer when things aren't right, you know, when things get difficult. If we're able to find our refuge within, I mean, essentially, in the Buddha, in the Dhamma, in the Sangha, you know, and what that means internally, if that's our true refuge of happiness, then when things fall apart externally or become more difficult or unpleasant, then it doesn't shake our, our refuge of happiness so much. Thank you. Thank you for your teaching. Uh, I am in an artist community, and um, there's a uh, uh, another artist in the building who I get along with just fine, but um, I don't trust her. And the other day, I heard her voice. My first response was one of judgment, which I'm thinking was the intention to protect myself, which leads to the comma of disunity. But then when I saw her, I noticed some vulnerability in her face, and I felt myself soften, which is back to the software and the hardware. I've uploaded the software of we are all one, but the hardware hasn't quite you know, met up with the software. So my question is, are those two different comic acts, and does, do they negate each other, or you know, what is the relationship between those two as I'm going through the transition of um, trying to be more wholesome? You know, even, as, even if we've been practicing the Dhamma for a while, developing lots of wholesome karma and certain realistic ways of looking at things, then we have a lot of pretty well and great old habits that can come up at any time. So there can be a certain seeming like a conflict of, well, who's going to be in charge of the mind? You know, the Dhamma or some of our old unwholesome habits. And they can kind of fight it out a little bit. So it's not surprising, you know, if we sometimes react out of insecurity, fear, aversion, right? All of that. Um, but it's also a very good sign that even without trying, really, you know, just pay through paying attention, you see how quickly that change and soften, and then you develop a very different perception based on that. It takes a lot of patience, you know. I mean, things things are flexible and we can change and, and our minds are, are malleable, but uh, it, it doesn't happen overnight. You know, it, 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 uh, sometimes if we wish that the positive changes would come a bit quicker and you have to be very patient with our old ingrained habits. Right. It's, uh, I mean, this will be, I'll be doing this for the rest of my life. <laughs> but it's maybe, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> We don't know. We don't know. You, you may uh, fully overcome all unwholesome reactions 
well before you die. But you, you May it be so. You said earlier, you said earlier about it being motivating. There's also a sense of responsibility of, well, I'm releasing these intentions. And so um, it's not that there's a, a burden, but there, it feels like a, a responsibility, some kind mm -hmm. of. Yeah, very much. I mean, we, we affect the world by how we respond to it. Certainly we're affecting other people by how we respond to them. And you can see if, uh, if, if we're in a bad mood, it spreads, right? And there's a certain responsibility for that. You know, we're, we're in a bad, bad mood and then other people start reacting to that and, and then, they, then they react to other people. It's like, oh yeah, I have, there is a responsibility here. You know, I, I affect the world and and that helps to motivate, you know, not just acting on, you know, if we're in a bad mood, just acting on it, but say, okay, I don't want to be responsible for this spreading. So maybe I'll make a special effort to try to generate something positive or at least keep my mouth shut. <laughs> All right? We can't force ourselves to be in a good mood, but we can, we can you know, attempt to see things in a different way we can attempt to look at the positive in a situation. There's all sorts of things we can do which will help to modify the situation. Thank you. Thank you. I um, really appreciate your how good you are good at asking, answering questions. It's so important. Um, uh, I'm tired. I, I went to see the um, Mr. Rogers movie and got out at 1 o'clock last night. But he is, there's so few people that actually are conscious about what reality they generate. And he, uh, you know, he was always conscious about what reality he was generating, especially in children. Um, I was thinking of the brain and had heard a man who um, was a professional and had looked at brain scans and he realized his brain was is was wired just like psychopaths but, <laughs> but, yeah, but it was funny and um, he uh, um, but his his education his culture training his his upbringing his um community uh, or sangha prevented him from ever being uh, at creating that kind of reality. Um, I also, when I got some kitties, I realized their culture was to be scared of water. So I gave them trainings on how to like water. And the word app right now is floating around. I think that is the word representing our teaching, our um, because our apps are uh, tactile, visual, auditory, and internal. And then we, we put them into our lives just like we do our learning. And with your education, uh, gave you uh, the opportunity to be able to endure your beautiful life. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm thinking, trying to think of how many people have even mentioned what it means to be responsible for 
the um, reality people generate <laughs> on one hand. <laughs> I can actually, and it's just amazing. Thank you. It's, it's great. Well, how about if we generate an app for samadhi and peace of mind? When artificial intelligence really starts to make some inroads, and we get our implants. I'm going to make, I'm going to work with some Silicon Valley folk and we're going to make some samadhi apps. Because samadhi is still a conditioned reality, so it may be feasible just to Say, okay, may the mind now be peaceful, calm, and bright and aware. And you, chip. It wouldn't necessarily, it might be more difficult to have wisdom apps, but samadhi apps would be a good start in that direction. Yeah? What is samadhi? Samadhi is essentially when our minds are calm, peaceful stable, relaxed, tend to be bright, uh, pleasant. It's physically pleasant, mentally pleasant. Right? So when meditation is going really well, and you're going like, <sighs> and we're not distracted, we're not, we're not overcome by thoughts of the future, the past, or mental hindrances, you know, just... Feel spacious. Yeah. That's why we don't have a good English word for translating that. We used to translate it as concentration, but that doesn't really ca capture it. Yeah. But uh, what <laughs> we were going to break for lunch at uh, 11 o'clock, and it's already 10.42, so maybe we do a little bit of meditation uh, before we end the morning session. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.